When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent. As oral arguments approach next week in the big, big marriage equality cases, every good Supreme Court reporter's mind turns to, well, raw politics. Not so much of the Republican-Democrat variety, but... We're starting to witness the season where there is a sudden blossoming of articles speculating how the voting is going to go down in the two key cases now pending at the court. The marriage equality cases, those are going to be argued April 28th, and the King versus Burwell case, Obamacare 2.0, heard by the court last March and talked about on this very show. Now, cast your mind back, if you will, to 2012, when Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the decision that saved the Affordable Care Act in the first Obamacare case, NFIB versus Sebelius. Here's a little tape from him reading his opinion in that case. The Affordable Care Act's requirement that certain taxpayers pay the government for not obtaining health insurance is, in effect, a tax on those without insurance. Passing on the wisdom or fairness of such a tax is not our role. Because the Constitution permits it, we must uphold it. Now, there was at least a little bit of evidence at the time suggesting that Roberts actually switched his vote at the 11th hour in that case, casting a very reluctant vote with the court's liberal wing to save Obamacare. A good bit of the fretting and fussing about how the court is going to decide the new challenge to Obamacare, as well as the marriage cases, turns on these questions about why Robert switched his vote, whether it tells us anything about how he's going to vote this spring, and, well, to put it very bluntly, whether all of this just comes down to politics. On today's episode of Amicus, we're going to bravely jump right into this fray and see if we can't tease out a little bit more about the motivations of the Chief Justice and some of his colleagues on the court. We have two veteran court watchers here to help us, Professor Eric Siegel of Georgia State University's College of Law and Adam Liptak of The New York Times. We're going to begin with Professor Siegel, author of a recent piece in The Daily Beast titled, quote, The Supreme Rivalry That Runs America, end quote. In it, he more or less argues that everything you need to know about the rest of the 2014 term involves understanding that there's just a big old power struggle between Chief Justice John Roberts and Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy. So welcome to Amicus, Eric Siegel. Thank you, Dahl. I really appreciate being here. And I guess that's a pretty provocative title. I know that um, the supreme rivalry that runs America, uh, as the Daily Beast puts it, probably overstated a little bit. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your basic thesis about this kind of smackdown for history between the Chief Justice and Anthony Kennedy. Sure. I do want to say, I, I didn't say everything you need to know about this term can be re reflected or learned through this relationship. I, um, I don't, I, I, that's a little bit overstating it as well. The point I want to make is that in really big cases, which both the Obamacare case, this term, and the same-sex marriage cases obviously are, in those kinds of cases, I think that there is a battle for control of the court going on between the Chief Justice and Justice Kennedy. And I think that it is extremely unlikely 
that Justice Roberts would allow Justice Kennedy to write both the same-sex marriage decision, which he is very likely to do, and the Obamacare decision. And and let's maybe explain to listeners who don't know how opinion assignments happen, because that will unpack this. Sure. The, the, the general rule is the chief justice, if he is in the majority, gets to assign the opinion. So in any case where Justice Roberts agrees with four other members of the court, he gets to make that decision. If the chief is not in the majority, then the most senior justice in the majority gets to assign who writes the opinion. And there are virtually no cases where Justice Roberts sides with those four liberals or moderates over the last five years, except the landmark Obamacare case of 2012, which I think changed the narrative about the Supreme Court. And there's an abortion protester case last year. But generally speaking, when the court tilts as Justice Kennedy wants it to, which is almost all the time, he gets to assign the decision. I think that bothers Justice Roberts. Now, I have no proof of that. But when Justice Kennedy's batting average in 5-4 cases is as high as it is, I think that might affect a normal person who is ambitious and smart and important as Justice Roberts is. But he only gets to assign the opinion in those 5-4 cases if he's in the majority. I think that one of the things that's intriguing to me about this approach is that it's not politics R.D., you know, it's not ideology. It's something that borders on ego, grandiosity. Right. I think that's a great question, and it's a point I really want to make, which is when we consider very important decisions made by senators and governors and presidents, we know they make these decisions based on a complicated array of factors. We hope they take into account the public interest. They probably take into account re-election, though a second-term president doesn't do that. We also know they take into account their personal legacies, how this will make them look in the public eye, how this will make them look on the front page of either the New York Times or the Washington Post or, you know, depending on their constituency. And we that's normal. Well, the same is true for Supreme Court justices. And what happened with the Roberts Court was he was made chief in 2005. And two years later, in a very important term with abortion and affirmative action and other cases, Justice Kennedy was in the majority of 5-4 decisions 24 times in a row. His batting average was perfect, 24 and 0. And it was widely circulated and reported in the press. It is the, not the Roberts Court, but the Kennedy Court, and that he holds all the power. And, you know, I think a normal person, I'm not criticizing Justice Roberts for this, but I think that might get to him. And so it's a couple of different things, What you're, I, I just want to tease out one more piece of this. It's not just that Justice Kennedy is the deciding vote. It's that Justice Kennedy gets to write for the ages, too. I think it's three things. I think it's not just that he's the deciding vote and not that he gets to assign the opinion if, in fact, he is the one swing vote. It is also – I wrote in the piece that when I was a lawyer at the Department of Justice and we had a big religion case and at that time Justice O'Connor was the big swing vote, we litigated the case in the trial court to make sure we maximized our chances of obtaining Justice O'Connor's vote when the case eventually got to the Supreme Court, if it did. And by the way, that case eventually did go to the Supreme Court. With Justice Roberts making it unclear who the swing vote is, and now he has made that unclear, the Obamacare case changed everything in that regard. 
Now his presence has to be looked at in a different way than when only Justice Kennedy was the swing vote. And I'll repeat this again, 24 and 0 in 5-4 cases in 2006, and his record, Kennedy's record was pretty much 90-95% after that. So it's a way also of establishing his importance in the highest profile cases, and even if it's not conscious, I think we would expect a normal human being to want his presence felt, you know, in that kind of way. Now, we haven't yet heard argument in the marriage equality cases. We have heard argument in King versus Burwell, the Obamacare cases. And it was interesting to me, tell me how this fits into your hypothesis, but the two stories that emerged after oral argument seem to track some of what you're saying. One was, holy cow, Kennedy looks like he's going to vote with the liberals, right? He's really worried about this states' rights federalism argument. And the other story was, holy cow, John Roberts didn't say a word. Uh, What does that tell you if it And I know one wants to be cautious about saying that oral argument means much. But what does that tell you about where each of them may have been and how did that inform the piece you then wrote? I think it's a great question. It's more about Roberts than Kennedy. But let me just say one interesting thing about Justice Kennedy's comments at the oral argument. He raised a legal argument that was not raised by the parties but was in several amicus briefs. And the argument that Justice Kennedy was interested in was if the court in King versus Burwell read the Affordable Care Act the way the plaintiffs wanted him to read it, he thought it would raise states' rights issues because he thought that if the plaintiffs prevail in their interpretation in that case, the states would be coerced in a way that was unconstitutional. No one raised that argument among the parties. And so his focus on an amicus brief was interesting, and I think he was trying to find a unique way to decide the case. But even more interesting, Justice Roberts normally is a serious questioner. He's very good at it. He's very smart at it. And he normally plays law professor games with the advocates, especially in front page cases. He almost said nothing the whole time. And I think the image he wants to portray now is as the seasoned veteran chief looking out for the legacy of the court, looking out to find a, you know, kind of a solemn like way to divide this case in a way that makes everybody happy, which is what he did with the Affordable Care Act case, or at least everybody happy and everybody sad at the same time. And his posture, I think, was one of I'm just going to sit back and, and, and be the great thinker. I think part of that may be another way to, to suggest that this is his court. He's going to let everybody else play it out and, and sit back and like kind of a dean of a law school be the last person to speak. I don't know. I'm speculating, Dahlia, obviously. I have no idea. But it would be consistent with the story that he is concerned that history will read this time period or label this time period as much more the Kennedy court than the Roberts court. And I think he does not want that to happen. I wonder if we could close, Eric, with your thoughts on this question. It is clear that those of us who watch the court and think about the court and talk about the court feel all kinds of hinky when we have conversations like the one you and I are having now, and that even well-respected legal journalists just feel deeply weird uh, having conversations about justices doing anything but neutrally applying the law. And uh, I would just love to know, as somebody who I, I think 
very comfortably has these conversations. Why is it that you think we are uh, so uptight about talking in this fashion, in this kind of overtly political, calculating, strategic fashion about the U.S. Supreme Court and the lower courts? That's a great question. And, you know, I wrote a book on that question. So it's going to be difficult for me to um, posit a, a short and concise thesis. But I think I'm going to take issue with your description of we. Law professors have a very difficult time ascribing these kinds of motivations to Supreme Court justices because law professors want to pretend it's all about doctrine. Political scientists, Dahlia, would laugh at the suggestion that we shouldn't have these kinds of conversations. There are hundreds of famous political scientists who are Supreme Court experts who think it's all about studying the justice their background, their politics, their where they went to law school, um, more than studying legal doctrine. So I, I'm on the side of the political scientists, you know, almost all the way down, and I'm my career is devoted to the attempt to get law professors to accept that narrative as much as the other one. Eric Siegel is a professor at Georgia State University College of Law. He's the author of the book, Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Justices. Eric Siegel, thank you so very much for joining us on Amicus today. It was my pleasure, Dahlia. Thanks a lot. Joining us now to keep thinking about these questions of how the justices decide the cases the way they do uh, is Adam Liptak. He covers the U.S. Supreme Court for The New York Times and has written a little bit about this, uh, not as much as Eric Siegel. Uh, First of all, welcome to Amicus, Adam Liptak. Oh, it's great to be here, Dahlia. And I I wonder if we could pick up where uh, we just left off with Eric Siegel, which is this question of why do political scientists cover the court the way they do, which is just votes, politics, all the way down, whereas con law professors uh, cover the courts or think about the courts as though it's magic and oracular and completely doctrinal? You know, they're both kind of right. Uh, Lawyers tend to think about cases one at a time and try to figure out and harmonize and synthesize legal doctrines and make sense of what the justices are doing one case at at a time using legal materials. Political scientists tend to look at voting across a whole range of cases. And when you do that, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that whatever the justices think about what they're doing, many of their votes uh, correlate pretty closely with political ideas about the justices. And what do you think as a general rule, and maybe this is too oversimplified, where do you think your average Supreme Court reporter, say, for The New York Times, locates uh, himself on that continuum? In other words, do you find that you default to writing about the court as a political institution or that you default to writing about the court for con law professors? So again, it probably depends on the kind of story I'm doing. On a daily story, Uh, I'm likely to try to locate the court and the justices uh, along doctrinal lines about how the votes and the thinking and the rationales fit in with earlier cases. And that's a legalistic way of thinking. And in other kinds of stories, making broader claims about the court, I rely on social science and political science data. But even in the individual cases, and this is somewhat controversial, I don't hesitate to say the court's four liberals did this. And the court's four conservatives did that, and Justice Kennedy split the difference. Uh, There are people who are offended by the idea that you can identify a liberal and conservative wing of the court, uh, but they're fooling themselves. 
they would like to have a conception of the law which is completely disinterested and impartial and it's just a series of robotic inferences from legal materials, and that's just not reality. But, but Adam, isn't that the reality that the justices want us to have? I mean, that's, right, that's the narrative that they push, that they are completely apolitical, uh, and that balls and strikes, law all the way down, and that anyone who suggests that the fact that the president who appointed you perhaps shares your politics is just tantamount to a slur on the whole enterprise. That's their usual public position. Uh, They believe it to some extent, but in private, they know that, and they will refer to themselves as the conservatives do this and the liberals do that. Uh, I guess I draw a distinction, and the Chief Justice drew this not long ago. I do tend to agree with them that they're not political in the partisan sense. They don't affiliate themselves with the positions of the Republican Party platform, the Democratic Party platform, but they're political in a broader, more ideological sense. Some of that maps onto modes of judicial interpretation. So one kind of response to the critique I just sketched out is, yes, it looks like it's political, but really it's jurisprudential. And I guess I would respond to that, so what? I mean, if it gets you from here to there, uh, you can call that uh, result political in some broad sense. You, you've written a bunch about how polarized this court is, and indeed it, it is a remarkable moment in history when everybody who is a liberal, as you characterize it, was appointed by a Democrat. Everyone who is a conservative is appointed by a Republican. And I wonder how much that feeds into the kinds of thinking that John Roberts has to deal with when he's trying to not look like a political institution. In other words, I wonder if he had been given a court or or put in charge of a court that wasn't so fractured along these very identifiable lines if he would just sleep better at night. So a couple things. The justices would first of all say, uh, yes, you're right that this is the first time in American history that a closely divided court aligns perfectly ideologically with the party of the appointing president. Never happened before. But also, Even so, last term, you know, Dahlia, they were unanimous about two-thirds of the time. So this uh, political strain or polarized court that we detect doesn't work itself into all of the decisions. In fact, doesn't work itself into most of the decisions. But it does tend to work in the most highly charged front page end of June cases. And it may help explain the Chief Justice's surprise vote in the last health care case in 2012 where he joined the court's four liberal members to uphold uh, most of the Affordable Care Act. And that coalition, the chief justice plus the four liberals in a five to four case, has never happened in the 10 terms of the Roberts Court, except for that one occasion. His reasoning may well have been that it would look pretty ugly, or it may have played a role in his thinking, that it would look pretty ugly for, in an election year, a Democratic president's signature legislative achievement to be struck down in a five to four decision with all the Republican appointees on one side and all of the Democratic appointees in dissent. And talk a little bit about, I suppose this is what people who are waiting to hear the result in King versus Burwell, how this plays out. Here we are in 2015. Uh, Obviously, the composition of the court hasn't changed. It's still the signature landmark legislation of a Democratic president. Is Roberts thinking the same thing this time? Oh, my God, I can't be the fifth vote, you know, to strike down or functionally strike down Obamacare? Or are the stakes different this time? 
I don't think the Chief Justice is eager to be the fifth vote with the liberals again to save the law, if only because the circles that he moves in uh, and the criticism that he got in the wake of uh, the last decision from usual allies uh, cannot have been pleasant. And I think he was only half joking after that 2012 term when he went off to teach in Malta that that was a good move because Malta's an impregnable island fortress and it seems like a good idea. Uh, That said, I don't think Chief Justice Roberts or the other justices self-consciously think or speak in the terms we've been talking about. I believe they think they are earnestly engaging the legal materials. But we all know that we bring various, um, various influences to our jobs, and we may not be conscious entirely of what we're doing. Uh, this week, piling on to this conversation about what chief justices worry about uh, in the wee small hours of the morning, we have Jeff Rosen writing in The Atlantic talking about, again, this fight for John Roberts' soul. And he postulates, I think, a version of what you said, Adam, which is, look, there's an institutional responsibility that Roberts felt in 2012 in Sibelius, the first Affordable Care Act case. Um And there's still an institutional responsibility, and he talks about how Roberts thinks of himself as, you know, the heir to the great John Marshall, and that what's going on here isn't politics, and it's not ego. It's this third thing that has to do with being, you know, the Sherpa of the legacy of the court itself. Is that going on here as well? So I thought that was a characteristically very smart piece by Jeff Rosen, and I think he makes important points along those lines. Uh, One thought experiment we can use, Dahlia, is you remember that John Roberts was initially nominated to replace Sandra Day O'Connor, and so was initially nominated to be an associate justice, not the chief justice. And then Chief Justice Rehnquist dies, and he gets the new position of chief justice of the United States. I think his voting is different as a consequence of the fact that he's chief justice, because I do think that he, like all chief justices, view themselves as stewards of the institution, as caretakers of its uh, legitimacy and authority. And I think for that reason, he works hard to get unanimous decisions. And I think he works hard also to do what he can to try not to have the court to be perceived as a political and in particular a partisan political institution. I'm glad you mentioned that, Adam, because here we have uh, in Stereo Sound, the Chief Justice himself last fall speaking at the Nebraska College of Law in response to a question about what he worries about with regard to the judicial branch saying this issue of perceived politicization. That's not the way we do business. We are not Democrats and Republicans and how we go about it. And in nine years, I have never seen any sort of political issue like that arise between us. But if you're an intelligent layperson uh, uh, looking at what's going on and you see, for example, the confirmation process and how you know, somebody as eminently qualified as our newest member, Justice Kagan, is confirmed by a, almost a strict party line vote, you think, well, this must be a political entity because they're you know, putting people on or, or rejecting them because on, on partisan political lines when that's just not how it works. And so I'm worried about people having that perception. Adam, can I ask you one question that has been on my mind for 
certainly since the King versus Burwell arguments, but it's been bothering me since 2012. And so now I've got you here. Um, What do you make of this strange meme that says that folks who are writing about these kinds of things, and certainly even this conversation you and I are having, is a kind of a chintzy way of lobbying the court. And that there's, you know, invariably the Jeff Rosen piece that says, oh, Chief Justice Roberts, you don't want to screw this up, uh, is seen as a form of bullying. Do you a, uh, think that the justices read and think about and care about what journalists say about them? And B, is there something unseemly about even talking and writing this way? Is it something we should steer away from because it, it tarnishes that whole image of the court as oracular and marvelous? So on the second question, no, we shouldn't stay away from it. It's not our job to prop up the prestige of the Supreme Court. It's our job, if we're news people, to say plainly what is so, if we're opinion writers, to write opinions vigorously. So I don't think whatever the court's concerns are are not the concerns of journalism and opinion writing. But that's a different question from do the justices care? Are they influenced by what you've called lobbying? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, a justice once asked me why it was the New York Times often runs editorials on the morning of an argument. Uh, and this justice said, do they think we've overlooked something? I mean, <laughs> they get really good briefs. They get really good advocacy. They get a 360-degree view of the law and the subtext in many of the briefs is here are the consequences and reasons and doctrines why you might want to do something or not. A newspaper editorial, an op-ed piece, I don't think is going to penetrate. Uh, One footnote, though, I believe that arguments cast as legal arguments, and in particularly on the prominent law blogs, I'm thinking of the Volokh conspiracy and balkanization, uh, do penetrate the justices who are thinking in at least nominally legal terms. And I think there is a kind of shadow advocacy in addition to the briefs that goes on in those forums before and after argument. But that's different from, is John Roberts going to change his vote because someone wrote an op-ed piece? I don't see that at all. Of course, that circles back to our initial conversation about the way to talk to the justices if you want to advocate is to talk like a law professor and not like a political scientist. You want to give them the legal tools to do that thing they might want to do for other reasons. Adam Liptak covers the Supreme Court for The New York Times. It was a pleasure to have you. It was great to be here, Dahlia. Before we say goodbye today, we want to remind you that Amicus is part of the Panoply Network, a network that is just chock full of other fascinating podcasts. And here's a little taste of one of them. I'm Baratunde Thurston. I'm Raquel Cepeda. I'm Janet Colbert. On our next episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, we talk about the brutal police killing of Walter Scott in South Carolina and ask, will something really change? Do black lives actually matter? We address Kendrick Lamar's announcement about his wife-to-be and the dark-skinned activist who went in on him because she's not dark at all. Colorism still alive. And finally, we deal with Mindy Kaling's brother, Vijay Chokalingam, who pretended to be black in order to get into middle school 17 years ago to prove that affirmative action doesn't work and is wrong. Is he right? We'll talk about that as well. Check out our national conversation about conversations about race on Panoply. 
And that's going to do it for this episode of Amicus. As always, we love to hear your thoughts. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. We would also appreciate it so much if you'd take a moment to let other people know about the show by leaving a short review on our iTunes page. Just search Amicus in the iTunes store and click the Ratings and Reviews tab. Thank you to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped, and to Oye, which provided this week's excerpt from the Supreme Court's public sessions. Oye is a free law project at the Chicago Kent College of Law, part of the Illinois Institute of Technology. Thanks also to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln for that tape of John Roberts being interviewed last fall. Amicus is produced by Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus.